0: Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you're watching at Grace Harbor Creek or in the Grace Commons, we love you. Thank you for being here. If you're watching online or on TV, I, I just couldn't be happier that you've joined us today. You know, whenever historians examine historical documents, like one of the, the, the formal principles that they use to help determine the, the truthfulness of a document is called the principle of embarrassment. Now, this principle, which is we instinctively feel. It basically says that the inclusion of details that are embarrassing to an author are probably true. So people generally don't make up and share embarrassing stories about themselves. It's, it's human nature. In fact, just the opposite. They, they would usually edit those out to make themselves or to make the story look better. To put it another way, historically speaking, when embarrassing details are included, it adds truthfulness to a historical claim. One of the most interesting reasons why I believe we can trust the Bible is that it includes embarrassing details, not only of the heroes of the faith, but of the biblical writers themselves, even Jesus. And I believe Mark records and reports embarrassing details precisely because they actually happened. And so today's passage is one of those. It's a story that probably should have been edited out if they were making this whole thing up. Because it makes Jesus look a little weak and tired as he's confronted by his family who who think that he's gone mad. And it even seems like he's he's being rude to his mom. It also includes one of the most debated and controversial passages in all of the Bible, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is essentially called the unforgivable sin. We're going to address both of these problems today. But make no mistake, this passage is about Jesus. It's not primarily about the unforgivable sin. It's not primarily about the treatment of his family. It's about Jesus' mission and his identity. He's not a great moral teacher. He isn't just a religious leader. He's not a historical figure who started a a worldwide movement. He's not a prophetic humanitarian who came to shed light on social justice issues. Jesus is the all-powerful, almighty ruler of all creation who came to declare himself to the world and to demand allegiance from all people for all time. He, he He drew a line in the sand of history, and every one of us, between the time we're born and the time we die, have to make a decision about Jesus. So, we're going to be in Mark, starting in chapter 3, verse 20, so you can find your way there. And let me just set the scene for us. The crowds are continuing to grow uh, along with Jesus' popularity among the people. The masses are following Jesus and his disciples everywhere they go, and they're pressing in to get a, a, a touch or a glimpse of Jesus. But, but it wasn't all just positive momentum the, the opposition that had started with the religious leaders is deeper and more insidious than we even knew. So today's text really is a study in opposition. We're gonna see how Jesus handles it and we're gonna learn from it. And here's today's big idea. You, you can face opposition with Jesus because you know he wins. Like that's good news, everybody. Now, before we dive headlong into our text today, let me introduce you to one more context clue. It's a literary technique that Mark uses throughout his Gospel, and he does it for a very specific reason, because it helps us to read and interpret certain passages. And the the method is called bracketing, or, or I like to call it the sandwich technique. And a rough definition is just that it's a story inserted into the middle of another story so that the two will interpret each other. It makes us like a story sandwich. And we have to pay very close attention to to the story that's inserted in the middle because it sheds light on what's really going on in the main story at hand. And so in today's passage, Mark begins with an uncomfortable encounter with Jesus' family in, in verses 20 and 21. Then he comes back around and ends with that same encounter in verses 31 to 35. And in the middle is one of the clearest descriptions of spiritual warfare that we have in the whole Bible. And Mark's point, I believe, is that with this sandwich, is that any attempt to derail or redirect the true mission of Jesus, even by his own family, even by his own disciples, falls into a category of satanic opposition, as Peter would soon find out in chapter 8 when Jesus tells him, "Get, Get behind me, Satan. So, so what appears to be opposition from his family, Mark is saying, is actually spiritual opposition. That's what the sandwich technique tells us. Now, we're going to look at, at Mark three twenty through 35, and you'll see how this plays out. Look at verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he calls them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what I want you to see today from this text is three kinds of opposition and Jesus' ultimate victory over all three. So the first is family opposition. Je- Jesus became so involved in his mission that it seems ne- neither he nor his disciples were taking time to eat or sleep. His family heard about this and they came to, what, what the Bible says, seize him. They, they came to take him by force. They certainly had some concerns that were m- well-motivated. Like they were probably worried for his physical well-being due to the demands of ministry and the crowds that they hadn't seen him for months and, and maybe they were shocked by his change of appearance. Maybe they felt that it was time to kind of rescue Jesus from the crowds. Maybe Mary's faith in Jesus' mission was unable to kind of prevail over her motherly concerns for the well-being of her son. Some people wonder if Joseph had died, and that's why he's not included in this story. And so maybe the family showed up because they wanted Jesus to come home and perform the elder brother duties that, as the head of the household, which would have been his. But but around this same time, Jesus had also begun speaking in cryptic terms about the end of the age and proclaiming the coming judgment of God. And the fact that his family was gonna take him by force it seems to indicate that they were intent on silencing him, which means that there were probably also some ill-motivated concerns that, that brought them out to the front lines to Jesus. So maybe they had heard uh, about the trouble that he was causing, the religious leaders, and they were trying to, to shut him down. It, it certainly wasn't good for the family reputation back home. They were probably getting tons of backlash from the locals. Verse 21 indicates that they, they clearly believed at some level that Jesus was out of his mind. And so they showed up to to dissuade or or to somehow alter his ministry in some way. This is one of those passages that probably should have been edited out if the Bible was going to be cleaned up by later editors, but it wasn't. It's in there in all its gritty detail because it actually happened. And because of this sandwich technique, we know that this was part of the enemy's scheme to to change the course of Jesus' determined march to the cross to rescue humanity. And so the family shows up and Jesus is like, who are my brothers and who is my mother? And we, we we're forced to ask, well, did he not love his family? Well, no, he absolutely did. He's not totally rejecting his family here. He would maintain a, a continuing relationship with his mom. They, they would later, he would later appear to his brothers post-resurrection when they would finally come to believe in him. But it's an important reminder that all other allegiances, including family, take a back seat to our relationship with Christ. Remember back in week one, we said Mark's original audience, they were made up of people who were, who, who were being sold out by family members and having their names and identities turned into Nero for persecution. And some of you are familiar with opposition from family members. Like beyond just being ambivalent to your Christian faith, they're actually opposed to the fact that you follow Jesus. There are some of you in, in this place whose family members don't even know that you go to church because you're hiding it from them. Because you know what's going to follow, the lectures, the sarcasm, the awkward moments at at family functions, the comparisons with other siblings who are doing it the right way, the, the generalizations about all people who go to that kind of church. There are plenty of you who know exactly what I'm talking about maybe you think that, 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 you should go to, that they think you should go to a different kind of church. Or maybe they would be less threatened if you didn't go to any church at all. And make no mistake, Jesus' response to this visit from his family well, was no less shocking in his day than it is in ours. The family in those days was the basis for social and economic life and the source of one's actual identity. And so Jesus' response shocked the status quo, and it still does. We talked about this at length in August, but let me just state it again. How does Jesus show victory over family opposition? Jesus redefines family. He doesn't do away with it, he doesn't minimize it, he expands the definition, he redefines family. And so in verses 34 and 35, he looked around at the disciples and his other followers who were in the room and he said, here are my mothers and and brothers. For, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So so Jesus is affirming that life under God is not defined by relationships in a biological family which was primarily geared for the preservation of a bloodline and and in those for wealth and for honor but now one's ultimate devotion is owed to God who is the head of a new divine family. And becoming a member of this family is now open to all people, regardless of race and class and gender. And Jesus would later say that in this new community of believers in the church, that, that you're gonna receive family-like relationships that will more than make up for any that you may have lost for the sake of Christ. He envisions that, that people who lose their families for the sake of his kingdom in this lifetime will have a bigger and more robust family who, who love and support and care for them. He demonstrated this even in his own family. In a stunning scene at the foot of the cross, Jesus made arrangements for for Mary, his mother, to be cared for by John, his disciple. And in that moment, at Christ's declaration, Mary and John become family to one another. And they would demonstrate all the loyalty and commitment that we would expect from a biological mother and son. See, at Jesus' word... Those who are not in the same biological family are united in a spiritual family at a level of intimacy which rivals and and sometimes even transcends those that you're connected to by blood. This still happens today. And in this redefinition, we discover that God has designed the universe such that everything works better, including family relationships, when His glory is our singular priority, And so Jesus dealt with family opposition and he showed ultimate victory by redefining family. Here's the second kind of opposition. It's religious opposition. And so in verse 22, the scene shifts to the irate teachers of the law from Jerusalem. The Pharisees had sent some of their deputies called scribes down to investigate and to debunk and derail any momentum surrounding Jesus' ministry. Jesus came from from outside the system, after all, and so he must be silenced. And the problem is, when they got there, there was stuff going on that they couldn't explain. It was clearly supernatural. But instead of attributing it to God, they said, well, he must be possessed by Satan himself. This incident is proof that someone, listen, can see miracles firsthand and still not believe. Jesus answers them through two parables, a kingdom divided and The strong man's fortress. We're going to come back to the second one in a moment. But in the kingdom divided parable, Jesus points out the obvious absurdity of their claim. He says in verse 21, can Satan drive out Satan? Like the obvious logical answer is no. Jesus would build on this in the second parable by saying no, this is not a civil war among demonic forces. And yes, I am from outside the system, but I represent a stronger force that has arrived stronger even than Satan. Unfortunately, these religious leaders couldn't see past their pride and they assumed that because Jesus disregarded their you know, hallowed oral traditions and he obviously failed to, to kowtow to their authority, well, the only explanation for this is that he must be an undercover agent for Satan. So, so how does Jesus show victory over religious opposition? Well, Jesus demonstrates that a religious resume doesn't guarantee faith. In fact, not only do they see all his works and do not have faith, but in so doing, they've actually committed what he calls an eternal sin, an unforgivable sin. Now listen, I've had so many conversations with folks over the years about this. People who are, who are just distraught and they say, you know, I, Pastor, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin and there's no way God will forgive me. I said horrible things to God or about God when I was in a very dark place. Or I, I made fun of Christians when I wasn't one. And I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit back then. Or, or here's another one. My friend took his life. And, and, and is suicide the unforgivable sin? Well, I want to look at verse 28. And I want to see exactly what Jesus says. Look what he says. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven, but, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, so what is the exact thing that's going on here? What, what are these religious leaders doing precisely that Jesus is calling out? Well, they're taking the, the work of God and they're attributing it to Satan. They're demonstrating just how far gone they are in their thinking. There's another passage associated with this over in Hebrews chapter 6, which describes someone who will never again be restored to repentance. And, And so what is the sin in question in both of these cases where the Bible talks about this? What is the unforgivable sin? I would suggest the theological word is final apostasy, which is deliberately and with finality rejecting the power and forgiveness of God. It's when you have resisted him so decisively that he has forsaken you and you will no longer repent for the rest of your life. Now I will quickly add that The surest sign that you have not committed the unpardonable sin is the fear that you may have committed it. In other words, if you're questioning, if you're concerned that you've committed this sin, you certainly haven't, because your concern by itself is proof that your soul hasn't reached a state of final apostasy. Now, here are some things that I believe are not the unforgivable sin. One is verbal blasphemy or other words that you might speak. The Apostle Paul, in his own testimony, he proves that blasphemy can be forgiven. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, he says, Even though I was a blasphemer, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Another thing is murder or infidelity or sexual immorality. God has a long history of forgiving these sins. I believe suicide is another one. And while the Bible does not address this specifically as a category, we understand that just because someone's final moment in this lifetime involves a sin, that doesn't mean that, that the forgiveness of the cross doesn't flow both backward and forward in their lives. It covers both ways, and so I certainly don't say this to in any way encourage suicide for someone who's considering it and watching today. It is the most senseless act you could commit because your life matters, and your life has incredible value, not just to God, but but to people who love you. And it is God's job to number your days and not yours. But I do want this to serve as a word of comfort to those who have lost loved ones to suicide. I'm amazed at the number of people who believe that this act alone condemns someone to hell. Guys, the cross still works, even in a person's final senseless moment. And so again, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Jesus was very specific in defining this sin. It was addressed to this specific group of religious leaders, and what was their crime? They deliberately attributed what they knew to be the work of God to the devil, and they did it for their own gain. And Jesus knew, here's the part, Jesus knew that they would never repent for this. So for us, we we probably will never know if someone has committed this sin. In their final breath, they can always have repented. But this sin applies to those who believed until the very end that God's power and forgiveness didn't work. And so Jesus knew that these scribes were in that category. Now, let me just say again clearly the blood of Christ still works, His forgiveness is pure and powerful, and He gives life to cover all of your sin. Listen to Romans 5.5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were Enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so guys, to access that forgiveness, the Bible says it's simple. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Notice he doesn't add, unless you've committed the unpardonable sin, no. The atoning death of Jesus covered every single sin. This is the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus faced family opposition and he demonstrated victory by redefining family. He faced religious opposition and he claimed victory by showing that a religious resume doesn't guarantee faith. Here's the third kind of opposition. It's satanic opposition. I mentioned, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus was accused of being possessed by Satan himself. And he responds to this opposition with two parables. The kingdom divided appealed to logic. He basically said, guys, think about it. <laughs> My exorcisms brought healing and not harm. So why would the devil and his minions be participating in widespread deeds of mercy and warring against you know, the guys who are on their own team? This would be a civil war that would render the forces of evil a not very formidable foe and pretty stupid on their behalf. And so he shoots down that idea logically. But the second parable in verse 27, he he doesn't appeal to logic. He appeals to authority. And he goes on to paint a picture for us about the the supernatural conflict that is in play for all of us. He, He pulls back the curtain on a parallel spiritual world. And in one short verse, he gives us maybe the Bible's most succinct thesis on spiritual warfare. He's already begun to wage this war against the forces of darkness back in chapter one in the desert and in his first encounter with Satan's temptations. And now he describes this battle that will rage not only through this gospel but through history into modern times, our time, and beyond. But it's a battle that has a foregone conclusion. It's an anticlimactic battle because we already know how it's gonna end. So I wanna read you again verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. And so here we have this picture. And it's a picture of Satan as the ruler of this world. That the strong man here is Satan and he is strong for a time and and he has a house and he has goods. And so this house that he's in is his dominion. It's his territory. And right now his dominion is this world. And so the house is Satan's world. And he's seeking to hold it secure. And the goods, it says, the goods, you can picture it here as like a little treasure chest. The, The goods that the strong man is protecting are people. And they are the children of God. And they are people who have been held captive by Satan's schemes. But then this person in the text called he shows up. And he is the opposite of no one. He is the someone who is strong enough to go into the strong man's house and plunder his goods to get his people back. And the he is Jesus. And he is the one who is stronger still than the strong man. In fact, he is the strong man binder. And Jesus is able to overtake the strong man and bind him in the corner and rescue his children from their captivity from the evil one. A stronger and more powerful one has entered the scene and he is the savior. You movie lovers can 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 scale this picture up a bit into a kind of Lord of the Rings vision. So picture a grand fortress on a hill looking out over a desolate plain and the evil ruler is in his fortress scheming, surrounded by his minions. And he's like a, a military chieftain whose fortress has been invaded now by a superior general who outranks him in every way. And with very little trouble, the superior general ties him up in the corner while he goes about plundering his whole domain. Satan is the strongman. Jesus is stronger and it's not really even much of a contest the the binding that we see here is important spiritual warfare is essentially the the binding of Satan and this binding theme shows up all through the scriptures Satan and his emissaries were first bound at the fall of angels from heaven and they were imprisoned in this sphere but even while they have some control in the earth, as we see in the book of Job, they still need God's permission for certain activity against his people. We've seen already in Jesus' temptation narrative and even in, in more in the exorcisms that Jesus' first move in dealing with Satan is, is, is a kind of binding. And the final binding is going to occur at the bottomless pit and in the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. But, but here in this text, we get a glimpse into into this larger opposition that Jesus is facing. With with his coming kingdom of God, Jesus is battling not just, you know, the the battle's not just being waged against petty tyrants and kings of the earth and their domains, but, but this battle is against the kingdom of Satan, which has enslaved all humanity. And Jesus came to free the captives. And listen, you and I are in this battle. And the outcome, yes, it's a foregone conclusion, but we're still in it. And the devil has, has some predictable schemes. And each of these is tied to a title that the Bible gives him. The devil's not too creative, but he is persistent. He comes back to the same themes over and over again. And so the devil is a liar, the Bible says. And the scheme that he uses is distraction. He lies and he deceives us about what, what's important and what's unimportant in life. And if he can keep us busy and distracted by unimportant stuff, we will neglect the things that are most important. And so the devil's expertise is much wider than just temptation. He's mainly interested in spreading error. And that's why the first piece of armor that Paul mentions for standing against the schemes of the devil is the belt of truth. Satan's lies cannot withstand the truth any more than the darkness of night can withstand the light of the rising sun. Second, the devil is called a divider. Actually the word is categorizer. And the scheme that he uses is discord. Satan's agenda for this planet, for this country, for our city, for this church, for our family and your family is to divide and destroy. Satan loves plotting people against each other, one political party against the other, one race against the other, one nation against another, one family member against another, spouses against spouses, siblings against siblings, children against parents, bosses against employees, neighbors against neighbors. Discord is one of his favorite playgrounds. And finally, the devil is called a murderer. And the scheme that he uses is devastation. Sometimes Satan wages a full-on attack. Like he would love to bring sickness and disease and accidents and injuries and heartbreak, even death, to the people of God. This is full frontal attack by Satan. And just like we've done with all the other examples of opposition, from family opposition to religious leaders, the question is, how does Jesus show victory over satanic opposition? You know what the answer is? It's pretty simple. The answer is... Jesus wins, he, he, he's the somebody when nobody would confront the evil one. He's the binder of the prince of the power of the air. Jesus wins. He wins in the desert as he's being tempted. He wins in the strong man's house. And even though it looks like he loses at the cross, he wins there too. He wins at the empty grave. And the final conclusion is that despite the opposition, Jesus goes on to win the victory over sin and over evil. And the Bible says in Romans 8 that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead with power, is now living in you. That power is in you. In John's first epistle, he he warns that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do do you know what he says, though, in that same letter? He says, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we're on the winning team. And, And I would just ask, well, what do we do in light of all of this? Well, first, I believe Christians should do a whole lot more than talking about the power of God. Instead, we should be exhibiting some evidence of his power in our lives. I'm not talking about culture wars being fought by keyboard warriors from from a home office. I'm also not talking about some fancy incantations, hocus pocus, and and pastors up here waving prayer, prayer hankies around and people falling down and then asking for more money. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is actually walking in God's power actually walking in God's truth, actually living in righteousness, moving through life with with an expectant confidence in the power of God. After all, we serve the stronger man who has the evil strong man tied up like a little junior cadet in the corner. And and so the way you talk and the way you behave and and the prayers you pray and the words you say should cause people to go, that woman, that man, that kid has been with Jesus. So what does this look like? Well, I believe that you and I, but we'll keep it on you for a second, I believe that you participate in the actual binding of Satan by living a transformed life and by standing against any advancing evil in your world. Ephesians 6 commands us to dress in the full armor of God. And and so in light of this battle that we're in, we, we have to put on armor, and so he says, the belt of truth, the, the devil's going to tell you clever and believable lies about God and about yourself. And you can defend against this attack by knowing and trusting the truth that God has told you through Christ and through and in the scriptures. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're, you're growing in righteousness. You're growing in obedience with God's help when you're focused on right living and on hearing and obeying the voice of God and on saying no to sin, you're actively participating in the binding of Satan. He says, put on the shoes of the readiness with the gospel of peace, that you're ready to to rush in and to be a peacemaker where there is discord. He says, grab the shield of faith that you're fully trusting in God, that the God of your faith to protect you against the fiery arrows of the enemy. He says, put on the helmet of salvation, that your thoughts are convinced of the certainty of your salvation, that you think often about the gift of salvation that has been given to you, that rescued you from sin and death, and the hope that that salvation provides. And then he says, the sword of the Spirit. This is the word of God that you can always rely on to fight back against against that enemy when you feel under attack. And I love the main point of this passage in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God and about this spiritual warfare. You see, the goal of it all is not to go storming the enemy's camp. It's not to take the next hill or to lead the next brave spiritual offensive. I'm not sure most of us have the strength or the wherewithal to pull that off right now anyway. Plus, that's what Jesus already did to the strong man. <laughs> so what's our goal in getting all armored up for battle? Listen, listen to Ephesians 6.13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. What's the point? He so said, just stand. Stand firm. You don't need to advance, but you do need to stand That the armor is going to help you to stand against his schemes. We said he uses distraction, he uses discord, he uses division, he uses full-blown devastation. Where do you need to stand? See, Christians must do more than just confess the name of Jesus. Even the demons do that. We must stand up and confront evil in every arena of our lives. And so where is evil prevalent in your life? Where is there spiritual opposition at play in your home, in your workplace? Where are you? finding yourself in a compromised position. Wherever it is, the Spirit of God is prompting you to armor up, to take a stand. Today's next step has to do with this theme in Mark that we're calling cosmic conflict. And here's the discipleship question that goes with that theme. What circumstances do I need to see through spiritual eyes? And and here's a follow-up question. Where are you facing opposition in your life? Maybe it has to do with distraction or discord or devastation. And how will you take your stand? I remind you as we close that Jesus wins. I love you guys.